Is that not good news? His mercy is more. We're going to be talking about some of that here in a little bit, as well as the, the truth of, of, of the cornerstone and judgment stone and all of that. Uh, but to get us started this morning, I want to talk a little bit about um, Teddy Roosevelt. He was an unforgettable guy. Well, everything that he did just had to be an absolutely unforgettable uh, figure. And I actually have a photo of my great-grandmother with him. This is 1909, so this is uh, at uh, what would later become Berry College. It's the first year that they opened it up to, to ladies. My great-grandmother, Nida Collins, we called her Big Mama, She's the one with the, the umbrella on the far right-hand side. And Martha Berry, the founder of Berry College, is up there as well to the right of Teddy Roosevelt. But there's Teddy Roosevelt as well. This is 1909, okay? So he's former president at this point. It's three years prior to um, when he died. But one of the things I want to tell you, just to give you an example of how, how full of gusto and, and gumption and all that, that this guy was... In 1912, October of 1912, he was going to give a speech as part of like his campaign. And as he was uh, preparing to get in the car to drive there, uh, a, a man shot him in the chest. And the doctors were pleading with him to go to the doctor. And he's like, no, I, I've got to get to the auditorium. I've got a speech to give. So he goes and he goes to the auditorium and uh, he gets there and he, he, you know, gets the crowd to silence. He's like, listen, I need you to be a little bit quiet. Um, and I need you to forgive me if I don't talk very long because uh, I was shot on the way over here. And he reaches in his, in his, uh, you know, in his jacket and he pulls out a 50-page manuscript that's got a bullet hole through it. It's covered in blood. And you know, he asked them, forgive me if I don't speak very long. And he went on to deliver a 90-minute message to them. Just this is who this guy was. Uh, just as a side note, it probably uh, the the fifty pages probably helped slow the bullet from getting to his heart. It hit one of the ribs and st- and lodged there, and they took it out after he gave his campaign speech. But that's that that's who this guy was. Just a bull of a man. And when he died uh, seven years later in nineteen nineteen. After all that he had done in his life, his youngest son telegrammed his brothers, the rest of his sons, over in Europe fighting World War I and said, the lion is dead. And so his life was almost like an epoch in itself and, and, and like the ending of an era. This morning we kind of have the same thing where you have this giant of a man, Elijah, and it's... An ending of an era. He's going to transition. We're going to see a transition to Elisha. That's what we've got before us this morning in 2 Kings chapter 1 and 2. Elijah is going to give way to Elisha. Very similar to Moses giving way to Joshua. But Elijah is going to be taken to heaven. And Elisha is going to become God's chief prophet just as God had promised way back in 1 Kings chapter 19. And then this is going to be accompanied, as soon as that happens, it's going to be accompanied with signs and wonders that Elisha is doing to show that, you know, he is now God's chief prophet. So he's going to immediately part the Jordan River. Then he's going to go to Jericho and he's going to heal a spring that had been cursed and poisoned from way back when. He's going to heal that and make it give forth, you know, good water again. And then he's basically going to call out 
two Syrian brown bears. This is the part that's crazy to come and maul 42 teenagers out of a mob that was mocking him and God and trying to run him out of town. This it's chapter two. You can look at it at the end. It's going to say little boys. I first read that. I was like, oh my gosh, they're mauling toddlers. But as I started looking at like the Hebrew is really teenagers. But all these signs and wonders showing, you know, that though Elijah is gone, Yahweh's not. And I think just, it's not the thrux of the sermon, but I think that's an encouragement we need to remind ourselves of. In our lives, sometimes we're going to lose parents. Sometimes we're going to lose a longtime boss. We're going to lose coworkers that we have worked with. We're going to lose a spouse. We're going to lose people that we've looked to. And a lot of times we'll look at that and, and, and you know, our, we're going to be mournful. We're going to be overwhelmed because this person that I've looked to for so long is gone. But be reminded, Yahweh's not. God is not. He's not gone. He never leaves. He never abandons. He never forsakes his people. And so these miracles in chapter 2 of Second Kings are just kind of showing this here that Though Elijah's gone, Yahweh is not. He is continuing to work, and he's working now through Elisha. But prior to that, chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, in the story that leads to and culminates Elijah going up to heaven in the chariots of fire, which if you are an elementary school uh, kid, that's what y'all talked about this morning. In your Bible study. But in the narrative that leads up to that, I think there are kind of like three questions. It's not God verbally stating these, but the underlying deal is almost like God's asking three questions of different players in the narrative. Three questions that aren't just for like transitioning to a new era, but that are questions from God for every era. And they're questions for specific players in this narrative, but they're questions for all of us that we need to answer as well. And not just once, because it's not just about, you know, uh, uh, some era in our life. There are questions for every era, every era globally, historically. These need to be asked by Christ followers. And they're questions like in our own lives. They are questions that elementary school students need to answer. They're questions that teenagers need to answer. They're questions you need to answer in your 20s. You need to answer in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, your 90s, and even in your 100s. Uh, my big mom I showed the picture of, she was, 100 and, she was three months shy of being 105 when she died. She needed to ask these questions as well, repeatedly. And so let's just dive into the story and we'll get to these questions as we make our way through. So 2 Kings chapter 1, starting in verse 1. After the death of Ahab, right? Ahab was married to Jezebel, right? Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah, this is the son of Ahab and Jezebel, fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria. Not good codes inspections, I guess. Something didn't go well. He falls through and he lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron. Ekron is in the land of the Philistines. Whether I shall recover from this 
sickness. Now, just kind of as a side note, this Beelzebub, this is probably the writer of 2 Kings mocking this God because Beelzebul means prince of the Baals. Beelzebub means, or, or lord of the Baals. Beelzebub means lord of the flies. So he's kind of making fun of this God. But then you also see a similar term in the New Testament with Beelzebub, which refers to the prince or the lord of the demons, a.k.a. Satan. So it very well could be that Ahaziah was reaching out to, was actually inquiring of Satan himself. But whether he was doing that directly or indirectly, both of the, all of it's satanic. Because Satan absolutely loves for people to worship, convert to any religion, convert to any philosophy, worship any God or collections of gods, as long as it's not the one true God. Loves that. If I could just get people not to worship the one true God, Satan is all about that. So whether this is directly satanic, indirectly, it absolutely is. But anyhow, so he reaches out, sends messengers to Ekron, verse 3. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king and he said to them, why have you returned? Like they stopped obeying their king and obeyed Elijah, right? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there's no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And he said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, he wore a garment of hair. With a belt of leather about his waist. Remember, Elijah is a precursor of John the Baptist. They dressed the same. And he said, and he probably said this with both despair and rage. It's Elijah, the Tishbite. He'd seen what Elijah had done. He'd seen how God had worked through Elijah. And so the whole point, though, here is Ahaziah, in the midst of dilemma, in the midst of, you know, he's on his deathbed, he looks to other gods for support and for healing and for assurance and for security and for hope. Do we do the same thing? Like, in essence, God's question, if we're going to kind of frame it that way, to Ahaziah here, It's not just, you know, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? If we're going to categorize that and try to summarize it, the question he's asking him here is, where's your hope? All right, so number one in your notes, you, you can write, you know, God's question to Ahaziah and really us as well. The same question is, where is our hope? And so let's think practically like in our own lives for a minute. Do we look elsewhere? Like, where where is our hope really? When when we really and truly are honest with ourselves, where do we place our hope? I'm not asking where should you place your hope. I'm asking truly, if you get honest with yourself, where do you place it? And maybe you can answer the question better by 
thinking through where would other people who know you say that your hope is. When people look at your life, when people hear the words coming out of your mouth, when people see your actions, where would they infer based upon those things that you really place your hope? And in the church, when we ask this question, where's your hope? Everybody's going to give it Sunday school answer. Jesus, right? And that's, that's right. That's true. That should, I mean, that's where we should have our hope. But it's been my experience as a believer that a lot of times people who call themselves Christians, in reality, a lot of times they have their hope in Jesus mm -hmm, plus something. Jesus plus something. And so maybe it's Jesus plus my bank account. That's where my hope is. Jesus plus a political party. Jesus plus my kids and their accomplishments. Jesus plus uh, my background and my heritage. Jesus plus the old red, white, and blue. That's where my hope is. My hope is not in Jesus alone. It's not in Christ alone. I can't really sing that song. I need to retitle that song in addition to Christ. My hope is Jesus plus these things. He's a little cherry on top. And when we do that, what we're saying is Jesus is not enough. Jesus is not enough. He's insufficient. That Jesus is not enough to secure our hope. Jesus is not enough to satisfy our soul. Jesus is not enough to bring us joy. It takes Jesus plus this thing. But Jesus plus anything equals idolatry. And it will rob you of the very hope and satisfaction and joy that you crave because those things can only be found in a lasting sense in Christ alone. Everything else that you set your hope and your security on will crumble. It will break. If it's in a person, they will let you down. Even if they're not meaning to. Just, they will. We're sinners. Our hope has to be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, no matter what it is. We wholly lean on Jesus' name. And so back to the question, where is your hope Really? Idols, false gods, functional saviors, God replacements. To whom will you seek for salvation, for security, for assurance? Ahaziah looked outside of the God of Israel. Do we look outside of the Lord Jesus Christ? And yet there was mercy if Ahaziah had just turned from his ways. Let's roll into verse 9, and we're going to see both judgment and mercy here. We're going to see both of those, because God is a God of justice and judgment. That was last week. He's also a God of mercy. Look at verse 9. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. 
He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. Now, let's read between the lines here. If he wanted Elijah to come see him, he's not going to send a platoon to go get him. Right. They have a directive here. Arrest him, capture him or take him out. But Elijah answered the captain of 50. If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered him, If I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. Oh, man of God, please, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s, but not but now let my life be precious in your sight. And then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron. Is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up. But you shall surely die. And so this whole fire coming down from heaven thing, right? This is a replay. We've seen this before. This is chapter 18. This is Mount Carmel. Ahaziah had seen this before. He was there. Right? And it's not like this was done in a corner. If they had news outlets, this would have been going all day long. Everybody in Israel had heard about this. And those who were there left in fear of the Lord God. They recognized Yahweh is God and there is no other. Baal is an impotent non-entity. And yet still, Ahaziah refuses to get the point. Like parents, Ahab and Jezebel, like child. And so Ahaziah sends these platoons. First, he sends one, 50 plus one captain to capture Elijah. And God's basically like, you didn't get the point about back at Mount Carmel. I'll show you again. Ahaziah still doesn't get it. Sends another one. You still didn't get the point. I'll help you get the point. Sends the fire down again. And then Ahaziah sends round three. But this time, though Ahaziah refuses... To learn his lesson and acknowledge the one true God. The captain of his unit has seen enough. He's seen the ferocity of God's justice. And so in a right fear of God. The fear of like if we put. If I, if I grabbed one of you. Who am I going to pick on today? We're going to pick on. Who's going to be my person? Tony's going to be my person. You made eye contact. Bad mistake. 
<clears throat> if we put Tony in a cage with a lion, he's going to have a reverential fear and awe of the power of that lion, even if that lion doesn't do anything to him. That's the reverential fear and awe we should have of God. Like, you know what the lion could do to you if he chose to do to you. That's how God could do. I mean, he could take us out at any moment, right? Fire. He, I mean, he could do that. It's a small thing for God. And so this captain saw this. He had had enough. He recognized, that, you know, who God is, recognized his power, recognized the ferocity of his justice. And so he refuses to listen to the king's orders and instead comes to Elijah and pleads for mercy. And friends, God answers his prayer because God loves to answer prayers for mercy. Loves to answer prayers for mercy. The prayers for mercy begin with us acknowledging that we can't do it. They begin with us acknowledging that we are fallen, that we're frail, that he's the Lord and that we are not. That he's powerful and that we are not. And so this captain comes and pleads for mercy, almost repentant-like. And so if we're going to kind of capstone all that's going on here with these three different captains, the first two came and commanding, you know, and the last one came and he's coming humbly with mercy. The question kind of comes down to us is, do you want, which do you want? Do you want justice or do you want mercy? The first two wanted justice. The last one wants mercy. And God is a God of justice. And he was executing in those first two his just justice on, on those platoons as they came to and sought to kill the prophet Elijah. But the one who essentially repented and begged for mercy, he was shown grace. It reminds me of the passage that Sarah read a minute ago. That's why I had to read it. Luke chapter 20. Jesus makes the point that though many reject him, he is actually the cornerstone of all of life and reality. He is the Messiah. He is the long ago promised one. And for all who will trust in him, he will rescue them from their sin. He will forgive them. He will be an anchor in their life. He will be a rock in their life. He will be their Lord. He will be the cornerstone of their life. But for all who don't, all who refuse, verse 18 of that passage in Luke 20 says, everyone who falls on that stone, Jesus talking, quoting Psalm 118, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And so once again, from the lips of Jesus, do you want justice? Or do you want mercy? And many of us, if we were just asked that flat out, like I remember when I was in college and I was just beginning to kind of, I mean, I think I was a believer, but I was just beginning to kind of get re-engaged with walking with Christ and First time I ever met with a guy who, who, who wound up discipling me for two years, he asked me the question, he said, he's like, what do you like more? Do you like justice more or mercy more? And I was like, justice? I want justice to be done. He's like, if justice is done, you're going to hell, bud. I want mercy, right? <laughs> if we got what we deserve, if we got justice, then that is what we deserve. So praise the Lord that his mercy is more. And his mercy is available to anyone. Because Jesus took our justice on the cross. It was paid. 
He's not just swept under the rug. God is a God of justice. It must be paid. Sin must be avenged because he is holy. But the point of the cross is that Jesus took it for us so that we don't have to. Justice was served on Jesus. Judgment was served on Jesus. He went through the fires of hell for us on the cross. And now for all who will trust in him, he will become our cornerstone. That's what he wants to be in your life. And so friends, Jesus, I mean, he is the cornerstone of life and reality. He is the Messiah. But for those who claim the name of Christ, who claim to be a Christian, like the question isn't, is that true? The question is, is it true in your own life? Do you live as if he is your cornerstone? Or, like Ahaziah again, are we looking elsewhere? Scriptures are clear. Jesus loves you. He loves you. And he wants your life to be one that is fruitful and productive. And he wants to grow in you if you are a follower of his. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The fruits of the Spirit. He wants to see those grow in your life. But you can't build that kind of life where Jesus is not, A, in your life, or B, he's just like a little part of your life. Like you segment your life off like it's a pie and Jesus gets this little slice right here. No, Jesus gets the pie. He's all of it. He has to be the cornerstone of your life. But if we like Ahaziah, like the first two captains and like all the religious leaders of the New Testament fail to see Jesus as the cornerstone of life and reality and fail to build our lives on him, then he becomes a different kind of stone for us. He becomes a judgment stone. Judgment for all eternity. But again, it doesn't have to be that way. His mercy is more. He offers mercy. He holds it out, but you have to receive it. It's not just default given. You have to choose to place your hope and your trust in Christ to forgive you of your sins. In what he did, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his actions on your behalf. Not your actions to try to, you know, tip the scales, good or bad. No, no, no. One sin makes all your scales bad. Jesus makes good. Trust Christ. Receive him as the cornerstone. Don't try and wait and wind up facing him as the judgment stone. Do you want justice or do you want mercy? The last captain, he sought mercy. He was shown mercy. God answers those prayers, loves to answer those prayers. But Ahaziah, he did not. And so verse 17, look at it with me again. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. God keeps his promises. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did are they not written in the book of Chronicles and of the kings of Israel. All right, but now let's, let's turn to that third question. The question to Elijah as he faced a new era. So look at chapter 2, verse 1. Thank you, Jeff. Verse 
Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elijah said, sorry, but Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel and the sons of the prophets who were there in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Verse four, Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here for the Lord sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho and the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho draw near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take you take away from you your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water and the water was parted to the one side and to the other to the two of them could go over on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. Like he knew was happening. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you've asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw them no more. And then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, where's the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other. And Elisha went over. It was an answer to the prayer he asked. And it's a little bit weird. It's a little bit confusing. What is he being greedy, asking for some sort of double portion? That's kind of greedy. What's going on there is when he's asking for that. I mean, he's been with Elijah for 18 years now. He's mentored under him for 18 years now. And he sees him as a father. That's why he cries out to him, my father, my father. Like that's how he views this man who has poured into him and who's mentored him. And when he asks for a double portion, what he's asking for is that he would, that Elijah would actually treat him like a son, like a firstborn son. Because in the ancient Near East, the culture was that if you were the, the firstborn son, you got a double portion of the inheritance compared to the rest of your siblings. I'm a second son. I don't really like that rule. That's not a cool rule. But that was the culture. That's what they did. And so he's saying, will you treat me like your son? Will you treat me that way? And so he cries out, my father, my father. And Elijah then answers him, listen, specifically what he's asking for with that double portion, the double portion of the spirit. By spirit, he doesn't mean like temperament or how he does things. He's talking about like how the Holy Spirit works in your life. I want that. I need that. If I'm going to carry on this ministry that, that God wants me to, I've got to have the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why like there's, 
immediately after this, you know, he strikes the water. Elisha does. And he sees that God has answered that prayer. He has given him that portion. And then you get those other miracles that I talked about at the beginning. As further proof that God has answered that prayer. And has filled him with his spirit. And though Elijah, I mean, Elijah first said, I can't do that for you. It's the Lord's decision on who he pours his spirit upon. That's not mine to give. But if you see me, this is where it's a little weird. If you see what's about to happen to me, then that's God's sign to you that he's going to give that to you. He sees it. The other 50 people there don't see it. And then we get these proofs that God has poured it out on him. But before granting that request... Like in verses 1 through 8 specifically. It seems like there's a question from God through the prophet Elijah to Elisha. And the question, and this is number 3 in your notes, the question is this. Will you follow me all the way? Will you follow me all the way? Because all that we see in verses 1 through 8, you see Elijah keep trying to leave Elisha. Hey, I'm going here. Don't come. No, I'm coming. Oh, I'm going here. Don't come. No, I'm coming. I will not leave you. No, I'm going here. Don't come. No, I will never leave you. So what's going on here? He's testing him. He's seeing, are you committed to this? Will you stay with this? Will you persist? Will you persevere? Will you follow me all the way? And again, jumping to the New Testament, this is exactly what Jesus asks his disciples. He said to them, follow me. And they immediately dropped their nets and followed him. If you go read in Luke chapter 5, when he asks this, you'll see that they leave with, I mean, it's a complete and willful abandon that they walk away from. Like they walk away from the greatest catch they've ever had. They walk away from their boats, which are worth a ton of money. They walk away from their old identities, from their pasts, from their careers, from their ambitions, from their old sins, from their safety and security. They left behind the right, and this is the big one, to call their lives their own. They left behind the right to call their lives their own. Christian, this is the call of God on your life as well. This is the cost of being a follower of Christ. Your life is not your own anymore. You were bought at a price. And you follow Christ. When it's easy and when it's hard. So in two weeks uh, is the next time that John and Chad and I will be making our next little section on the Appalachian Trail. We're going to be going down to near Hot Springs, North Carolina in two weeks, uh, picking up where Haley and I actually left off um, earlier this year. And so we'll pick up there at Garenfield Gap and we'll walk to a place called Devil's Fork Gap. Two weeks. And when you go on that place, you guys probably know this, there are white blazes periodically, trees, rocks, whatever. You just follow those white blazes. And sometimes those white blazes, you know, lead you through sections that are really, really easy. It's flat. It's nice, you're by a stream, the, the trail's smooth, there's pine straw, there's leaves, and it's just pleasant. Other times, those white blazes lead you to things that are brutal and unrelenting. And it's hard, very, very hard, slow going.
And as you make your way on those paths, whether it's hard, whether it's easy, following those white blazes, you never really know like what's around the bend. Is it going to be hard? Is it going to be easy? I don't know. But I'm going to follow these white blazes. That's how, that's what Christ has called us to. That's what it means to follow Christ. When God says to Elisha, will you follow me all the way? When God says to us, will you follow me all the way? That's what he's talking about. Will you follow me when it's smooth and beside still waters? Will you follow me then? What about when it's brutal and unrelenting? Will you follow me? That's the call on our lives because our lives are not ours anymore. They are his. I mean, following Jesus, like that's just the definition of what a Christian is. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who follows Jesus. If you don't follow Jesus, what does that mean? It means you're probably not a Christian. Now, make sure you understand. I'm not saying follow him perfectly, but following him truly. You're going to fall. You're going to slip. You're going to sin. That doesn't mean you're maybe not a Christian, but you repent and you turn back to Christ. So like I said last week, Christianity is not a religion for people who don't sin because we all sin and we're going to struggle with sin for the rest of our life. So it's not a religion for people who don't sin, but it is not a religion for people who refuse to repent. Repentance, a life of repentance because we're going to fall. So we repent and we agree with God. This is sin. We agree with God. We're going the wrong way. And we turn from that and we turn back to God, endeavoring to follow him anew. And so let me just ask you, like in your own life, how, how, how's that working out? Like, what are you doing? How are you living? Are you following Christ? Or are you trying to throw a leash on Christ and lead him around? Who's on the throne of your life? Do you place yourself there? Try to live that way? Or is Christ there? Who is your Lord? An idol, an ambition, a person, a relationship. Who's your Lord? Like as humans, we will sacrifice extraordinary things to achieve things that we very, very much want. What are you sacrificing to follow Christ? The disciples left their nets. They left, I mean, it, there's a cost. What are, if there's no cost, you've got to think about these things. What do you need to leave behind so that you can follow Christ more fully? Because following Christ involves every area of our lives. Again, it's not a slice of the pie, it's the whole pie. It involves your relationships, it involves your marriage, your parenting, how you relate to your parents. It involves your job, your school, your sexuality, your career, your money, your houses, what you think about, what you daydream about, your future plans, your future hopes. Following Christ involves every single aspect of your life. And so we must ask ourselves repeatedly in every era, am I following Christ all the way? But in our text, not, not only does God test and ask Elisha, will you follow me all the way? He's also given him an example of that in Elijah. 
Because again, he's been with him for 18 years. He's mentored under him and he's watched Elijah follow Yahweh all the way here to the, to the true promised land as he crosses Jordan and is taken up into heaven. Elisha's watched him. He's seen Elijah follow Yahweh. Slipping, falling, right? Remember chapter 19 when he's idolatrous himself and he just wants to die because his dream didn't come true? He's seen that, he's watched that, he's heard these stories. So he's seen Elijah follow God, again, slipping, falling, repenting, striving, and pointing to Christ. Is that, again, that's what a Christian does. That's, the, that's what it is. But as you look across like, the scriptures and you, and, you, and you pull up kind of getting a 30,000 foot overview, you see that Elijah is used of God in redemptive history in a very special and specific way to point forward to Jesus. God used this imperfect but grace-filled life to point to the perfect and grace-giving life of Christ. He uses this imperfect prophet to point to the greater prophet, Jesus. A prophet who would also confront idolatry, a prophet who would also judge with fire, a prophet who would also ascend to heaven, but not as an escape from death, but after tasting death for us, defeating it, rising again, and then ascending into heaven. And so friends, as mighty as Elijah is, as we look back on his life, one who was very similar to Moses, One greater than Moses and one greater than Elijah is here. The God-man, Jesus Christ. And he doesn't just call us back to covenantal faithfulness like Elijah's doing. Repent, 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 come back. But he actually bears the penalty for covenant breaking that we deserve. He's lifted up on an instrument of torture. So that if you will seek him, his judgment becomes your judgment. His resurrection becomes your resurrection. And so the question from God to you in this room is these three things. Where is your hope? Really? Do you want justice or mercy? And will you follow Christ all the way? And each of these questions hit each one of us in very, very different ways. For some of us, maybe like we need to spend a little bit of time, you know, focusing on number one primarily. Where's my hope, really? Where, where is it really? What do, I really? what do I really hope in? Maybe, second, maybe for others of you, it needs to be that second one. Do I want justice or mercy? For others in this room, maybe it's that third one. Will I follow Christ to the end? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to be silent for just a minute. So that you have some time to think and pray about these questions. Asking the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to your life and do it, just taking a little bit of time to repent where repentance is needed. Be honest with yourself about some of these questions. To ask God once again to forgive you and maybe for some of you to actually make the decision to receive Jesus, to trust Him as your Lord and Savior. Forgiving your sin and giving you eternal life. And so I'll be quiet 
for a minute. Let's think and let's pray. Father, I know so often in my life I do look outside of you for hope. Forgive me. And Father, though you've shown me mercy, sometimes I don't show the same mercy to others. Forgive me. And Lord, if you don't help me follow you, I won't make it to the end. But thanks be to God, but thanks be to you that you do help. The helper, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete lives inside your people. And he works through us. And so, Father, I praise you that Though I deserve justice, you give mercy. That though I have no hope in myself, there is hope in you. That though I look outside of you for hope and meaning and purpose, you are gracious and kind. And you love me too much to let me get, get away with that. And you call me back to yourself. You put things in my life. To bring me back to you. Father we praise you that your mercy is truly more. And that though we do deserve this justice. Before the throne of God above we have a strong and mighty plea. That Jesus went to the cross for us. He took our place. And he defeated sin and he defeated death. And he's given to us his life so that through faith in him, his life becomes our life. And you see us as holy and blameless, not because of our lives, but because of Jesus' life, because of what he did for us. Let us hang on to that and let us, let that fill us with a desire to live for you, to cast our all upon you. And to follow you all the way. To give up things in our lives that are idols. Things in our lives that we are clinging to. That are pulling us away from you. And will ultimately crumble. And help us to cling to you truly as the cornerstone of our life. An anchor that will hold. You are 
so good and kind. You are so patient and merciful. Fill us truly with hope, reverential awe, and a solidified confidence in you. A humble confidence that walks before you. Humble in ourselves, confident in your love, might, and power. In the name of Christ, amen.